Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good evening. Thank you all for joining us here tonight. My name is Kathy Spiller. I'm the executive editor of Ms. Magazine, and welcome. Tonight is being broadcast live um, over YouTube, and so for anyone watching the live stream tonight, uh, you can submit questions using the chat box or, or the comment section. So get your questions ready, because after our lively conversation, we're going to be taking questions from the audience. So uh, again, thank all of you for coming out on the Monday night after Thanksgiving weekend. Um, before we all get started with our conversation, we've got some amazing panelists who will be joining me on stage tonight. I wanted to give just a little bit of background. Tonight's event is one of 35 uh, events across the country that we've organized this fall, bringing together local feminist communities with national and local feminist leaders and activists and contributors to Ms. Magazine to talk about not only what we've learned from the last 50 years, but what we must do now to keep moving forward, uh, and particularly at this time of a backlash to women's rights and equality and rising authoritarianism here in the United States and around the globe. So tonight is uh, also a celebration of our book. Um, the title is 50 Years of Ms., the best of the pathfinding magazine that ignited a revolution. The New York Times calls it the illustrated guide to toppling the patriarchy. And that's what we're here to talk about tonight. Uh, the magazine, of course, uh, was launched in 1972 by Gloria Steinem, and co-founders comprised of both journalists and activists. They wanted a magazine that centered news around women, our lives, our experiences. And I think it's important to remember that there were activists among the founders. In fact, most of the founders, although journalists were themselves activists, activists in a movement that was taking off at that time uh, in a major way, the feminist movement. And that's why for all of its 50 years, Ms. has been a touchstone for the movement. Not only have we reported the news, but sometimes we've made the news. We've popularized ideas. We've sparked new laws and judicial decisions, always looking at the issues from an intersectional perspective because we are looking for advances for equality for all women. The collection of articles in the book shows how the movement for women's rights has changed and its ideas have evolved over the last 50 years. The articles showcase Ms. Magazine's tremendous impact, but also its prescience and as a roadmap for equality as we move forward. Ms. remains as critical today as it ever has been. The attacks on women's rights and the threats to our very democracy are intensifying. And we must all be able to understand the role that gender plays in right-wing extremism and the rise of authoritarianism. The power of the feminist movement is its ideas. And Ms. presents those ideas, not only um, as strategy for moving forward, but also to give us hope that we can continue to make progress. Ms. continues to publish to this very day, uh, four times a year, a print magazine. We have a very lively website publishing over 100 and some odd articles every month at msmagazine.com. 
We're now podcasting at Ms. Studios, have some amazing podcasts. The executive producer is Michelle Goodwin, a constitutional law scholar. We've uh, provided uh, uh, bookmarks tonight as, as you leave that have a QR code um, so that if you're not a member of the Ms. community, we're going to provide the first year of Ms. free. Um, so it's on us, and I hope all of you will join the Ms. community. Tonight's conversation, as I said, is both a reflection of the past 50 years, but also an assurance of the continued need for feminism and strategies for moving forward. So thank all of you for joining us this evening. So with that, we want to get started. Uh, I want to bring up uh, my panelists uh, for the evening. Amy Allison, founder and president of She the People, a national organization that elevates the voice and power of women of color as leaders of a new political and cultural era. Amy, do you want to join us on stage? The Honorable Betty Yee, who served as the California State Controller from 2015 to 2023, has 35 years of experience in state and local public policy, including finance and tax policy. Betty. And Dr. Sophia Yen, who is a clinical associate professor at Stanford Medical School and co-founder of birth control delivery service, Pandia Health. <laughs> and her bag, <laughs> which has traveled the world, <laughs> appearing in photographs with famous people and not so famous people. And she is with us tonight. Thanks, Sophia. So my first question is to all of you. Um, if you can remember when you first read Ms. Magazine um, and what it's meant to you um, as a feminist. Um, Betty, do you want to start off? Sure, I'm happy to start. Um, first of all, I'm just thrilled to be here, and thank you, Kathy. Um, I received um, Ms. Magazine as a birthday present in October of 1984, and I remember this because I was all in for Ger Geraldine Ferraro as our vice presidential nominee. And uh, so I received uh, an issue of uh, the October 1984 copy, and, um, and I had an opportunity to look back at the cover of it in preparation for this, and we were talking about anti-abortion violence back then, uh, you know, risk-taking by women, uh, I mean, just all the issues that we still are centering today. But um, part of why I got so engrossed in, in that particular issue was because I really thought, I really thought we were going to get a woman vice president back then. You know, someone who had just given voice to so many, you know, women and, you know, really dedicated her career because of her own life uh, to uplifting the voices of, you know, women who had to bear so much in terms of responsibilities and, um, you know, really went into um, law to help the most vulnerable and finally, finally can have a woman who just understands, you know, just the, the, the lived experiences of so many in America. And, of course, that didn't come to be, but um, I was hooked after that. <laughs> 30 years later, we finally did it, um, <laughs> getting a woman vice president. Um, Amy, do you remember the first time you saw Ms. or read Ms.? You know, uh, I was, hello. <laughs> <laughs> Hi. It's Monday after our holiday, and I'm happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Um, 
I'm 54, so, you know, the magazine's almost as old as me. I feel pretty good about that. Um, I do remember um, in Antioch High School, where I was a debater, um, referring to Miss Magazine's articles um, as part of my preparation on some very important debate topics. One of them was about the ERA. Imagine the ERA. Now, me as a 15-year-old, imagining that we would have uh, the power to change the Constitution, there was an article in there about what it would take for us uh, to pass it, and I actually debated that we needed it. The question on the floor was, do we need an Equal Rights Amendment? <laughs> and there weren't, there weren't a lot of sources even then. And I, I remember using the article to help to build um, and strengthen my own personal arguments and what I took to the floor. So that was my earliest memory. Ah, a great memory. Um, and we're still covering the Equal Rights Amendment, which we'll talk about a little bit later because um, most mainstream media is not. And so I think it'll come as a surprise to people that um, the status of the Equal Rights Amendment right now. So we'll get to that. Sophia, first time you read Ms. or saw Ms. Or... I think the first time I read Ms. was probably in college and probably part of a feminist studies class that I was taking there because we were in the minority at MIT. And so I sought my fellow female compatriots to bond with both in class and sorority and just in life. And the magazine seemed to me that as well, you know, offering the female perspective, bringing together a community, and then realizing later that feminist is um, just equality and that anyone can be a feminist with or without uterus, born with or without uterus, et cetera. So, um, and my husband is a sometimes more rabid feminist than I. So it's just been great um, to have Ms. Magazine there educating and entertaining and inspiring. So a follow-up question to that uh, for each of you as well. Um, as I mentioned uh, in my opening remarks, Ms. also from time to time created new vocabulary um, so that we could have a common vocabulary to, to talk. And one of the first words, I think, that came into uh, the vernacular as a result of Ms. was actually the um, cover line um, in the 1972, the very first issue, was the housewife's moment of truth. And in that, Jane O'Reilly, um, who's still alive and was at our event in, um, in Boston, um, introduced the word click. That, that moment when you realize it's not you, <laughs> um, it is the world around you um, and the sexism that is built into our institutions and into our culture. And it's not you feeling like you're weird in some way for having tried to figure this out. Can each of you remember if you had a click moment um, along the way? Sophia, do you want to? <laughs> I would say one of the click moments um, has come when you see um, somebody that knows something that you don't know. And specifically, there was somebody who come up, who came after me in academia, and he just went and asked for the promotion. And I just assumed that my boss would promote me when the time came, but that was the wrong thing to do. And realizing that 
one group functions another way and another group functions this way. And, you know, learning that we as women, when we come to a job interview, we don't bargain, we don't ask. And my mom has always said, if you don't ask, you don't get. And so if your first job, you should just ask for 10% more. The worst they could say is no. But if they say yes, then you start off 10% higher than everybody else. And that's what one group of people does versus another group of people. And that clicked when I saw that promotion situation. Cause I was like, I've been here longer. I'm board certified. I speak fluent Spanish. I have far more publications. He just comes in like, Oh yeah, let's promote him. And it's like, what about me? <laughs> <laughs> That's a pretty, probably a common click moment. I would think Betty. I was just going to say, uh, I think we've all had multiple click moments in our lives. And so, um, the one that I, um, it was early in my work life and, um, I was kind of sexually harassed. I mean, just verbally, you know, I mean, called names. Um, there weren't a lot of people who looked like me in my work environment. And so, um, I was the China doll to every male employee around me. And, um, when I went to, um, just speak to somebody about that, um, of course, who were the superiors in that environment? Men. So then I found, I sought out the women, uh, to really be, hopefully an ally, and then also some other female employees with whom I worked. And, um, and of course, we got nowhere with, the, um, <laughs> with the, the female management as well, so that uh, didn't uh, serve us well. But by the time we had about five or six women who had been harassed, really kind of coming together and making an issue of this, and that this was creating a very uncomfortable work environment, um, I wouldn't quite call it hostile, but because I think there were some among us who didn't know, quite know what to make of it. Uh, but we just knew that something was not right. Um, so we persisted, and um, but every, every step that we took, there was just that roadblock because the structure, the institution, the, uh, you know, the, the history, the culture was just all about um, just um, you know, kind of a male-dominated environment. So, uh, and unfortunately, that still exists to this day. Um, and don't even get me started on politics. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting you would um, say sexual harassment. Ms. actually helped educate the country about sexual harassment, putting it on the cover of the magazine in 1977, right. mm, 77, 40 years before uh, the Me Too movement. And it was a good 20 years before some of the first groundbreaking um, legal cases defining sexual harassment. Um, and the editors at the time said that they had to use a those clay doll figures, you know, those clay figures for people um, to illustrate what sexual harassment was because um, the um, uh, newsstands warned against putting real a real woman on the cover for that. Um, so uh, that was uh, Ms.'s way of making sure people understood what sexual harassment was. Amy, a click moment? I was um, thinking about um, the... As a 17-year-old um, high school uh, kid, I, I joined the Army Reserves, and they sent me for boot camp to uh, uh, Fort Jackson, South Carolina. It was my first time in the South. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I remember my bus pulled up this kind of like uh, alongside all these drab barracks, and... Uh, I was the youngest of the women who lined up there to be screamed at by the uh, drill sergeants. And um, 
uh, that was a profound summer of realizations for me. When I meet someone who's 17 now, I think, how do they put a kid in that? Um, but my unit had 200 women. Half of the women were black. Most of the women, very low income. All of us were there because we wanted to go to college, we wanted a job, we wanted to escape uh, violence at home or violence in the community. We wanted a chance for a job. We wanted a chance for a future. We wanted freedom. And my click moment in those late nights, you know, laying on the bunk in these like very rough, like dark green wool uh, blankets with our like dog tags, I was just talking to people about their lives and how they ended up there. The click for me was that, you know, we joined the military because we were looking for something as young women and as a lot of black women that we could not get other places. And that seemed to me, in my young mind, this profound, unfair thing, because I had signed an eight-year contract. And I wasn't even making... $3.30, which was the minimum wage at the time. And I thought in that institution in which I saw us um, be ordered around by a a structure, a military command structure that was male and mostly white guys, um, and uh, we were subject to a lot of harassment. Um, I know a third of us, as we go on in our military training, uh, subject to uh, rape in inside that structure, that, that we had to do something better. I had no ideas how to do better, but the click for me was the intersection for me between my gender, my race, and my economic status, that if this is the best the country had to offer, then I was going to work for something better. Okay. And so started a whole life of organizing for change um, and the military, even to this day, for women. Um, and it took an act of Congress just to take investigations on rape and sexual assault out of the chain of command. Yeah. Yeah. Just happened. Just happened. Yeah. Just happened. And it took feminists in Congress, right. uh, Spear, Jackie Spear especially, right. um, to make that happen. That's right. She'd been fighting for decades. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You know, as I was um, looking through 50 years of this magazine, which is extraordinary, uh, because at one time it was publishing monthly and then it went, it's, it's had a rough life um, for 50 years, but it has survived. Um, and looking through the 50 years, what became very clear to me is that every gain women have made over the last 50 years has been because there's been an organized effort to make that change. It didn't just happen. And that to not go backwards and to to keep moving forward will require organized activities as well. I mean, that's so clear when you look at what's happened over the last 50 years. That's the major lesson I came away with um, as I put together the book. And so I'm wondering, 
you know, looking back and obviously we were all very young, you know, when Ms. was first out, I was in high school myself. Um, but as you look through the book, is, is there anything that jumps out at you um, as a major lesson of the last 50 years that we've got to absorb um, if we're going to keep making progress going forward? Um, Betty, do you want to take a Sure. Yeah. Um, and I'm glad you talked about um, just the need to continue to organize. I think that is um, really key. You know, I think when we talk about movements, there tends to be, um, you know, some point in time during a movement where complacency sets in. And um, it takes like a shock, perhaps like the Dobbs decision or, you know, um, you know, some other, you know, major turn of events that um, kind of awakens us again. But I think the lesson to be learned here is um, we need to grow the movement. We need to grow the movement and we need to be smart about how to do it. And that means starting with um, young women. Uh, it means really looking at uh, how we use all of our levers, you know, politically, economically, socially, um, culturally, uh, to make that happen. And I also think that uh, one of the things that's developed in terms of effective organizing is this whole notion of storytelling. You know, this idea that we all can relate to someone who has had an experience, as Amy just shared with us, about hers in the military, that just becomes kind of like that connector. Because organizing is hard. You know, organizing is hard. I mean, just we were just talking um, earlier about how... <laughs> I, I just just talking to some some of my um, you know male colleagues in the political consulting sphere, who can't believe that reproductive rights has sustained itself as a campaign issue. I mean, they're just like oblivious that this is like like the biggest thing for all of us. But that you know they thought it was going to come and go. You know, Dobbs happened. You know, getting right. all these measures <laughs> passed in states. It's all great. No, this is like this is going to be uh, continue to be the the fight of our lifetime. But I think the um, being smarter is about how to grow the movement and really begin to involve you know more voices and to really frame these issues in a way where people can relate to them in terms of their own lives. And I do think the whole art of storytelling has been so, so critical as far as how we do that. Um, to, and particularly from areas where um, there aren't a lot of supports and a lot of, um, you know, just... Uh, resources for women to be able to feel like uh, they can be heard. Uh, I think this is a way that we can, with all the tools that we have now, to elevate voices to do that. So I hope we don't miss a beat going forward in terms of uh, how we continue to grow this movement. The organizing happens all the time with our elections. Um, and uh, see my dear friend Yvette Martinez, the executive director of the California Democratic Party here. This is what she lives to do every single day. But, but as, we, as we think about this, not leaving any community behind and that this is always going to be a movement that ought not be taken for granted. Excellent. Perfect. Amy, um, lesson from the last 50 years that we have to really take to heart to move forward. Well, I like... Uh, we have to grow the movement. We have to include younger people. But um, uh, the last 50 years, the idea of what the feminist movement is has evolved significantly. And the issues, I mean, you know, I, I started uh, She the People really because the idea that there was a woman's movement and that defined how people voted and what issues they cared about uh, just wasn't matching reality. 
and that uh, black and brown and native and Asian American Pacific Islander women were largely left out of a calculus as a way all of our issues, economic issues, issues of safety, just all these issues intersected. <clears throat> the biggest lesson is um, to develop the capacity for us as a movement to think intersectionally and to build um, uh, issues out. Like it started out like abortion rights, but it was never really abortion rights. It's, it's become a justice issue. It's, uh, we, we did um, you know, a big lesson to think inter, uh, intersectionally is manifest in this, uh, the movement of the fight that we're currently in because for a lot of the women of color in swing states that uh, we work with, uh, abortion's an economic issue. Mm -hmm. So for us to be able to think and articulate um, issues, to be able to look for leadership um, um, amongst LGBT leaders and, and immigrant leaders, and I mean, there's, we have to think um, in evolved ways about how to make sure that everyone belongs in our movement. And that has been um, so much more of hearing not only of, of the stories, but also allowing um, a new set of leaders uh, to emerge in the country, um, even if it means that we... Um, uh, take a step back or evolve our thinking, whether it's about how we're um, thinking about issues that aren't articulated as women's issues like climate, mm -hmm. um, or if it's about uh, the trans movement for recognition, the ways in which um, as we um, grow a movement that we expand our circle of, of belonging, I think is a big uh, lesson in um, the development, sort of the story that Ms. has been translating over the, over the decades, and that's one that um, I certainly have put as a cornerstone in my own work. Thank you. And Sophia? I would um, add to all and secondary, second all that you guys said. Um, for me, what has stood out over the 50 years, in addition, um, is that there is power in numbers, and there is power in speaking up and speaking out. And so I had an abortion signed by all these women in mass together. So we, one of us cannot be attacked. We're all coming forward together, safety in numbers, but also speaking out and recognizing the stellar leaders that we have, like Nancy Pelosi, that no other magazine put her on the cover, even though they put some other speaker of the house on every other cover, but not Nancy Pelosi. Um, but I just am so, you know, impressed with Ms. Magazine leading and um, putting out the cutting edge and highlighting and taking from the perspective of someone who was born with a uterus. Yeah. Actually, Sophia, I, I want to come back to you in a second because I, I want to turn and ask you all about the work that you do and its relationship to the movement. Um, it's the reason I asked you to be part of this evening. Um, and so on the issue of abortion um, and access to abortion, uh, that very first publication of Ms. Um, had this spread uh, in, in the middle of the magazine, as you were saying, that featured the names of 53, I think, prominent women who were standing up in 1972 to say that they had had abortions. And many of them were, in effect, admitting to having had illegal abortions, uh, because throughout most of the country in 1972, uh, abortion was illegal. 
Um, and, um, you know, the a uh, year later, the, the Roe versus Wade decision, uh, which uh, took away uh, most of the restrictions on abortion. And um, the Washington Post said uh, recently, actually in an analysis about a year and a half ago, that that, that one act by Ms. Magazine had changed the course of the movement for reproductive rights and for abortion rights because it had made visible for the first time women whose lives had been benefited uh, by abortion, and it, it made visible that which had been invisible. Um, and it's led to more of such petitions over the years. In fact, in the Dobbs decision, uh, there were at least two or three amicus briefs that were based on just um, reams of names of women who had had abortions. There was an amicus brief by women attorneys who, uh, on the record, uh, thousands saying that their lives would, they would never have been able to pursue their dream to be an attorney had abortion not been legal. Of course, that had, unfortunately, very little influence um, with a group of uh, very ultra-conservative justices on the court now who um, keep going back to this originalism line, which uh, they only pull out when they want to get rid of some of our rights, um, never when it would impact what they're interested in. Um, but it just shows you that, as you said, the power of storytelling. And Ms. has continued to report uh, on uh, abortion access and, of course, the Dobbs decision. But we continue to report on the backlash to that decision, uh, organizing uh, that's happening in blue states and red states. And, and every time it's on the ballot, we win it uh, with a lot of hard work at the grassroots. Uh, but Sophia, you're, this is your area. Um, uh, this is your life uh, in so many ways. And, and I know this is stating the obvious, but why is abortion access and birth control access such a key component of this movement and of women's lives? Well, it obviously only affects a certain part of the population and generally those who were born with uteri. But if you don't have the right to bodily autonomy, self-determination, then as Michelle Goodwin seized upon in the 13th Amendment, this is involuntary servitude to force you to carry something for nine months against your will that is involuntary servitude. And to me, that is second-class citizen. And I should have every right to decide what happens in my body and uh, ideally to my body as well. So absolutely the right to decide what happens with the pregnancy and to realize it's not just the person with the uterus. It affects the entire family. If I am sexually assaulted and I wish to terminate a pregnancy or if a pregnancy is threatening my life or just whatever, it will affect my entire family if I try to do a back alley abortion or do something that risks my health. If I'm dead, my husband and my children will not be happy. And hopefully my parents and my brothers, etc., will not be happy as well. And I also feel it's a, about religion, freedom of religion, that well, this country is based on freedom of religion. A lot of us left other places so we could practice our religion. And so your body, your religion, my body, my religion, I always like to say my mom's a Buddhist. And if she took over this country, we'd all have to be vegetarians. And that would not be fun for those of us who don't want to be vegetarians. But uh, just to illustrate why we need separation of church and states, it's such a fundamental for this whole 
And then birth control, you know, the ability to determine how many um, children you have, when you have children. For me, my passion for this was I was a pre-med high school student and I knew I had to get through college, medical school, residency, and fellowship, who knew, before I could pop out my two children, ideally, otherwise life was going to be very, very, very hard. And it, again, only affects those of us who were born with a uterus, not the other side, and to level the playing field so that we can attain education. And we know with contraception, women have been able to graduate college, high school, and higher education. How many doctors, how many lawyers, how many university graduates, you know, et cetera, would not exist if they had had a child when they were 16, 17, and where in this country, 60% of high school seniors have had sex. So to think that teenagers are not having sex, I'm an adolescent medicine specialist, is burying your head in the sand, you know, no, 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 just because you say no, it doesn't, it's still happening. And you really need to um, have comprehensive sex ed and access to confidential, um, comprehensive uh, reproductive health, birth control and abortion so that everybody can have a choice and um, daycare and supporting children. So you can choose. I find it so crazy that the states with the most restrictive abortion laws are also the states that are least likely to support the women and infant and children programs or welfare programs. Cause if you want to support this choice, fund this choice, right? That's right. Exactly. But all of that's under attack, yeah. all of it, including access to birth control. Um, in fact, it's um, openly advocated by even the likes of Steve Bannon that um, uh, contraception should be limited, if not um, access to it limited or, or eliminated. And Justice Thomas himself, in his concurring opinion in the Dobbs decision, suggested that maybe we should revisit um, the decisions around access to contraception uh, in the wake of the Dobbs decision. So um, access to contraception is not, not safe either. It is not. It is really, really scary what this court is you know, doing and what they're saying, and we need to be listening, and we need to take action. And if the right party is in power, then we may be able to balance the court, as we say, because as you all know, the appointment is lifetime. And these people are young, and they are radical, and they do not reflect the majority of this country. A radical fringe has taken over our court, has taken over one of the political parties and driven it such that the majority support the right to choose, that it is a personal decision amongst your family, your religious leader, your you know doctor, if you want to consult whomever. So um, they are totally not in sync with the rest of this country, and we need to make sure we preserve our rights. We vote. We get everybody we know to vote. And a phrase I put out there, and it's political, but I can be political because I'm me. Um, what... What wouldn't you do or donate to prevent another four years from an orange uh, maniac? <laughs> One other quick question before we leave this subject of abortion and access uh, and access to uh, uh, contraception. Can you quickly explain what the abortion pill is um, yes. versus emergency contraception? So I love giving out um, public service announcements. So public service announcement one for today is um, a medication abortion is um, actually two drugs used together. There's mifepristone and misoprostol. And you could just use misoprostol 
all, but some of the research has shown that that only works 77% of the time. Whereas if you put the two together, it's 93 to 97% of the time. And if you use this alone, you have to use it at a higher dose. There's more side effects. And so both of these are legal. Both of these have been used, I think, by over 5 million women. And um, mifepristone, which is the one that they're trying to make illegal, um, has other purposes as well to prevent certain endometrial cancers and I think a brain cancer as well. So you can't just destroy and make something illegal that has been legal, something that has been passed by the FDA that is safer than Tylenol, safer than Viagra, safer than penicillin because of your, you know, political, religious um, interpretation of the world. So you cannot leave medicine to the medical people, leave medicine to the scientists. And if you don't believe it, then you don't use it. But anyway, um, that is um, mifepristone, misoprostol. Know that there is a case going through the Fifth Circuit, um, which is a conservative circuit in Texas, where there's this group of physicians are saying, you know, that this drug shouldn't have been approved by the FDA and we want to take it back. And it's like, no. No, don't take it back. Um, and then the other thing is that there are 17 liberal states. And when I heard that, I assumed California and New York, we are not part of the 17 liberal states that are suing to maintain the right to mifepristone. And so that's good for them. And hopefully California and New York can sign on later. But if we can't, that's very uncool. But regardless, we should have access to these both of the medications, only one of them is at risk, mifepristone. And then realize that this is something you have a positive pregnancy test and you're like, I need to make this pregnancy go away and I'm going to take this medication. Medication abortion can be used up to 12 weeks after your last menstrual period. And then know also a great resource, plancpills.org nonprofit tells you what telemedicine in whatever state you are that you can do has a legal warm line and a medical warm line. And for $110 by telemedicine, you can get a medication abortion from somebody who's writing it in the Netherlands, shipping it from India, simply not to get sued in this country. Um, and then know that plan B, it's generics. Ella, this is emergency contraception. If you're pregnant and you take these, nothing happens. A lot of people confuse emergency contraception with abortion. And um, I believe I'm citing the New England Journal of Medicine. Yes, when I say the quote is levonorgestrel emergency contraception has no effect um, post-ovulation has no effect on implantation. And in fact, the research is to the opposite. So anybody who's arguing that plan B generic and it's generics or emergency contraception is an abortion does not understand science, does not understand medicine, and is pushing their, you know, agenda on you, not on any basis of science. So know that plan B and its generics, emergency contraception, I, we prefer Ella at my company because it works up to a body mass index of 35 versus again, PSA number two for you today. Um, if your BMI is 26 or greater, plan B and its generics does not work so well. My BMI is 25, maybe 26 after Thanksgiving and a lot of dessert. 
Um, if your BMI is 30 or greater, Plan B and generics does not work at all. So it's really important, I think, wherever we're distributing Plan B, and there's a lot of campus movement to distribute it, there should be a sticker that says, check your BMI, because if it's 26 or greater, not going to work so well. If it's 30 or greater, not going to work at all. But Ella, if you have it prescribed, thanks to Obama-Biden Affordable Care Act, no copay, no deductible if you have insurance, aka free, and works up to a BMI of 35. Once your BMI is 35 or greater, you can use a copper IUD or a hormonal IUD for emergency contraception. And know the copper IUD is kind of amazing with that respect. It's 99.99999% effective with the copper IUD in preventing an unplanned pregnancy for up to five days after sexual assault or contraceptive failure. So again, emergency contraception, not positive pregnancy tests within five days of something bad. And then this one is, oh, positive pregnancy tests 10 to 12 weeks after your last menstrual period. Abortion, prevention of the need for abortion. And that Everything you wanted to know. Um, and the abortion case is making its way to the Supreme Court. It's on appeal. Uh, we don't know if the court's going to hear it or not. Uh, it would be a tragedy for them not to hear it and to allow that Fifth Circuit decision to stand. Um, Betty, I want to turn to you in, in an area I know that you're putting a lot of uh, focus on right now. Um, and as I mentioned in that very first issue of Ms., the first cover um, was the multi-armed woman uh, many of you remember that. You've seen the image of uh, juggling work and house housework and paid labor force work. Um, and and the figure was pregnant, ex expecting um, the birth of a child. And the headline was uh, the housewife's moment of truth. Mm -hmm. uh, when you uh, realize that all of this was uh, uh, not fair, <laughs> to put it bluntly. Um, Coming out of the pandemic, uh, Ms. repurposed that cover, and we put uh, on the cover, uh, it was an artist actually who created the cover for us, and it was a woman also juggling uh, work and family life, one child in arms, one tugging at her um, shirt um, to get her attention. And we changed the headline this time, and, and we said, uh, instead of a housewife's moment of truth, it was the nation's moment of truth. And then we asked the question, do we care? And the focus was on the fact that our care infrastructure in this country is inadequate is an understatement yeah. um, for the current economy and the current times we live in. Mm -hmm. um, so I ask you now, do we care? Yeah. Well, let me just um, answer that initially by saying um, we will care and we must care. Uh, you know, when you look at um, just how much of uh, work in the care economy is so devalued, and there's been a whole history of this. This is not anything new. I mean, it really dates back to the Jim Crow era when we looked at how we valued domestic care and domestic health and domestic work. Um, you know, carried over into, you know, what we see today uh, affecting so many women. Uh, but I want to go back to what Sophia said, and that is, um, you know, this is all this is all just like so interrelated. And if I weren't like a conspiracy theorist, I think I would think that there's something going on here. And that is, this is really an undermining of women in our society, plain and simple, plain and simple. Because if you look at uh, what Sophia mentioned, in the states where there are abortion restrictions, they have 
either no or poor leave policies. They have little or no childcare policies or assistance. They have no um, family supports. They don't encourage education, let alone higher education for women. And so when you look at this care sector and what we have become, um, we are a nation that is aging. We are a nation where the child care system essentially got dismantled during the pandemic when people had to um, really look at, um, you know, I mean, providers had to be home. Um, and those who needed to be at work couldn't find providers. I mean, it was like this whole, like, perfect storm in terms of what came to head during the pandemic. Um, and it probably took the pandemic to really get people's eyes open about just what's at stake, because we're all living it. We're all living it. And I don't think there's anyone, certainly no woman who's been spared uh, from thinking about what does the future look like uh, for childcare. It was expensive before the pandemic. It's even more expensive now. Mm -hmm. To even get a provider to set up a care business or to be licensed and to look at how to comply with all of the uh, regulatory requirements is very expensive. We have childcare deserts throughout this country, including here in California. And all because we don't value this work. We don't pay the caregivers enough. And we certainly don't look at um, this, this part of our economy. I, 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 have to, I have to reference this because it used to get me so angry. Uh, I had the opportunity to serve on Governor Newsom's Future Work Commission. And every time child care got raised, or just even anything with respect to the care sector, you know, elder care or caring for people with disabilities, they always called it, a work-adjacent issue. Yeah. And I'm like, work-adjacent? It's a, it's a requisite work issue. I mean, nobody can think about work without thinking about care, period. And because of that, so many women, particularly women, women of color, immigrant women, um, are having to make some very, very tough choices about whether to be full participants in the economy or whether they're going to make a choice to um, actually stay home with their kids. Mm -hmm. And so these are the, the choices, and everyone is facing this right now. How we're going to rebuild this is going to be about really uh, putting a value into this. Isn't it interesting that as a society, we tend to devalue the work of those with whom, to whom we entrust yeah. our most vulnerable, right? Yeah. Our children and our elder loved ones and people with disabilities, you know? And so um, I hope there is a day of reckoning that will come soon. And I think it will come soon. And I think California can take a lead in, on this. So um, in California, uh, we have uh, particularly uh, childcare um, deserts in the Central Valley. Uh, there are not enough supports to have people go into this profession. I think what President Biden had tried to do with respect to trying to professionalize the care industry is exactly what we have to do. We have to think about how we invest, make this as an investment, because if we don't invest in, in, in this, at least from the public sector perspective, uh, we are going to see the inequities continue in terms of who can afford and access childcare and other care services uh, for family members. And so we're just going to create uh, an even greater disparity in terms of who has access to services. So where I think we have the opportunity, where I think we have the opportunity, particularly as it relates to our movement, is how we are going to really stand up for this human infrastructure that needs 
care that needs to be valued and that needs to be uplifted to be sure that the public sector makes it a priority across the board. And this is where uh, I hope we can get the um, build back better aspect of um, you know the Biden proposal uh, to begin to professionalize uh, these um, this kind of work. Uh, there's a lot of I mean everyone who does this work it is a labor of love, mm -hmm. and they are good at it, and we depend on them. It is not a work adjacent issue, and so um, I and and our economy depends on it. Our economy depends on it. You know, when you think about not just the women who are providing the care, not being able to you know, be out and be full participants in our economy, but other women who depend on the care so that they can work as well. So we see just so much, of, um, so much loss in terms of what we could gain economically if we actually lifted up the sector. And so um, I care a lot about this. I'm actually passionate about it, um, child care especially, because um, you know, when we look at um, just those early years of where a child can be supported, can really have you know, uh, nurturing environments, uh, this is such a game changer in terms of uh, just how the, tra the trajectory of the rest of their lives. Uh, I personally have been involved in the other end of the spectrum in terms of older adult care with my 100-year-old mother. Um, and, uh, you know, for that, um, you know, California, really the rest of the nation, every day about 10,000 people turn 65 years old. And uh, this is a rapidly aging time for so many Americans. And here in California, we're going to have about 30% of our Californians age 60 and over by 2030. And the need is great. We need millions of direct care workers. And so uh, if we were, are able to uplift the sector, there's just so much promise, and particularly the promise of women being able to contribute so much more uh, into this economy. And the numbers are startling. I mean, we're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars added to our GDP in the United States if women could work and be full participants in this economy and have the supports like care and leave policies that actually can support uh, all of that. So um, this has got to be the issue of our lifetime. You know, when I think about, I mean, my wheelhouse is always around the economy, but everything we're talking about here is tied to the economy. And that's where, you know, Amy's observation about, you know, the intersectionality of these issues, how we need to be smarter about putting a context around these, how we're smarter about how we're deploying resources and being sure that, uh, the inequities that have continued to carry over from generation to generation uh, finally get addressed because um, it's just um, going to be the only way that we are going to create opportunities for every single woman and family and their families. Exactly. Exactly. It's it's the economy and it's politics. Yes. Which Amy brings me oh, yeah. <laughs> to you. Yeah. Um, it, it, it intersects all of these issues in so many ways. And um, I'm reminded of um, an early article by Gloria Steinem. Um, she titled it, Women Voters Can't Be Trusted. And what she was really talking about um, is the gender gap. Yeah. Um, the difference between women and men um, in their preferences for uh, issues and candidates, uh, women wanting more, uh, women favoring candidates who want to invest more in the care economy, who want to invest more in education and in housing and in health care. Um, and those differences between uh, the way women and men see uh, the world and see politics um, is deciding the outcome of elections um, at the national level, at the state level, um, and at the local level. And so 
tell us more about what She the People is doing to empower this particular sector of voters, women of color, which, as you point out, is a leading indicator in terms of elections and more and more so as we go forward. Uh, I'll never forget, I was in Piedmont at a rich person's house who was hosting hosting a lot of other rich people to raise money for Hillary Clinton. Somebody else bought the ticket and gave gave it to me so I could sit in the room with 20 people. Um, We all thought Hillary Clinton was going to be president. (laughs) And... uh, the guy at my table was a professor at Stanford, also a rich guy. He decided to ask about his issue. I'd never been, I don't think, around that many wealthy, influential people who were using their capital, economic capital, to hold who I thought was going to be the next president's feet to the fire. So I figured, why not take my shot? Yeah. And I stood up and I said, um, uh, we all know that, uh, you know, black women are the strongest Democrats. And that, that's all I got out. And then it was all these other people were pissed. They're, how dare she? Oh, she's saying that's a total lie. You know, it's so like in 2016, there was no acknowledgement amongst Democrats, amongst women in the women's movement. There was none in the paper. If you Googled women of color or black women, there was no common understanding in our culture that black women had the highest vote turnout in almost every single election since we got access to the ballot in 65 before Ms. Magazine started publishing. And there was not an acknowledgement that we were going to be the margin of victory for the swing states that Hillary Clinton needed to win back in 2016 even amongst uh, deep-pocket Democratic political donors. And I was struck by that moment because we had a self-image problem, we women. And when I said that there was not a women's movement, race determines how people vote more than gender. We must be honest about that. If we cannot be honest about the role of white women in the, um, the trajectory the country has taken, we cannot do better. That's it. So, so much, and look, my mom's white, so I was like, I'm an expert on white women. <laughs> um, and so, so much of the work of She the People was telling a story, a new story, about a movement, a multiracial, inclusive, pro-democracy justice movement that put women of color, our, um, our sensibilities, how much we see, uh, our lived experience, and our commitment to democratic principles, small d democratic principles in the U.S., and took, you know, leverage both the strength of leadership that we saw, kind of an untapped resource, because we're so underrepresented at every level, and our vote. All of those things make women of color kind of the greatest natural resource America's got when it talks about political power and building power to do good for people. 
And so she, the people, uh, we were shining a light uh, year after year, election cycle after election cycle, on a group of people that hadn't gotten um, a fair shake, hadn't been respected, hadn't been polled, hadn't been invested in, hadn't been considered, running bland old candidates that don't talk about our issues, had, you know, uh, uh, getting us out in primaries, a whole political system. And that's what she, the people, um, started helping to define a movement of women of color that could help lead America. It wasn't women of color building power for women of color. That's not why I'm in this. It was women of color helping to lead the country in states like ours where the majority of women are women of color, California plus seven states, soon to be almost every state, mm -hmm. the fastest growing group of citizens in this country who could really determine what our grandchildren, children and grandchildren's lives were. So I just pulled out my phone because I wanted to, to share how important uh, you know, so if you followed politics in 2020, <laughs> if you followed politics in 2020, um, we had um, a an election that came down to one state, Georgia. Mm -hmm. Like you were like, which state? <laughs> California? No, Georgia. And women of color, black women who were organizers on the ground, exemplified by Stacey Abrams. But the movement in Georgia, the movement in Georgia was many years in the making, uh, and it included Asian Pacific Islander and Latina and indigenous women on the ground in Georgia, because Georgia doesn't even look like the Georgia you're imagining. For Democrats in Georgia, they were thinking it was something else than it really actually was. And those organizers were able to turn out a vote. But nationally, women of color's turnout between 2016, when, we were, when I, was, I gave my, you know, I shot my shot and one question to Hillary Clinton, from 2016 to 2020, women of color's vote turnout increased 7.5% nationally, as well as in places like Georgia. And it did make it possible for us to have a new political future. So then I said, okay, 22. 22, the, the last election cycle, people thought, okay, black and brown, but they told me, okay, black and brown women, that's not that, that was before. It's not that important anymore. In the political environment, donors, the rich people, the people who are already in office, who have um, their... They control both um, their set of donors. They control the um, professional consultants who go work on specific campaigns. They decide who to endorse and, and give legitimacy to. Um, the, the, the media had moved on from women of color by 22. Women of color are not going to define the future of the country. We're a country that's been defined from its beginning by white guys. And we're going to continue to go back to that reality once we got Trump out of office, is kind of the feeling I got. Then what happened in 2022? And I just want to share with you some facts that my great data people, as she the people, had just told me. Because I'm going to tell you, women of color is this thing. So, not, so nine Republicans, House wins, were within 2%. 
Five Republicans' wins were within 3,000 votes. In five of the nine races, women of color made up more than 15% of the the, uh, electorate and a slight increase in women of color turnout. Any one of those elected officials, um, donors, any one of the people I mentioned, if they'd invested and focused on turning out women of color votes, they could have swung five of the races, keeping Dems in control of the House. Now, you might think, because you're sitting here in California, that's their problem over there in Georgia. They're over there in Florida, those crazy people in Texas. How about Arizona? It's not our problem because we are a blue state, California, and we are so, yeah, right. California, California 13 has 40% women of color voting age. The loss margin, 564 votes. We have work to do, ladies, because I'm not even just talking about Republican versus Democrat. I'm talking about our ability to raise the minimum wage nationally, our ability to um, uh, codify our our rights, our reproductive rights, our abilities to to build a care economy, not just for us sitting here in San Francisco, but nationally, we have to build power. And I am convinced that we have to look at the untapped resource. That was not a fad. When the DNC and those people, you were blind and now you saw black women. Wow, I'm so grateful for you, Amy, and you black women. Thank you for saving America. Next, it isn't like that. Women of color are the future of this country. And in two years... In two years, we're going to hit a milestone. That's 250th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. And in some ways, the very foundational assumptions of this country is founded on, we need to call the question. We were not included. That's right. right. And on my father's side, I can only trace back to great-grandfather because of the horrors and the, and the robbery of slavery. But I can tell you this, that the people that I descended from were not considered in building this country's political system, but we are calling the question. So it was said to me backstage that 2024 will be a pivotal time where we call the question. And it isn't a time for us to cede one inch the political power that we have been building, black women have been building, women of color have been building, women have been building since Miss Magazine came out 50 years ago. We have been steady building that, and we cannot give an inch. We're almost out of time. I'm, I'm going to ask Commonwealth to give us a few more minutes. And um, we can't get to all your questions, obviously. I'm picking the one question I really feel needs to be covered tonight. Um, and we've all talked about it as, as uh, a, a collective uh, backstage. But uh, the question is, what do you think uh, of the ERA delegation that went to the United Nations to urge that the U.S. put the Equal Rights Amendment in the Constitution? Um, and the U.N., of course, has criticized the United States for not having an Equal Rights Amendment in its constitution. And here, here, 
Um, the thing I want everybody to leave with tonight, besides that, you got to be in the Ms. community if you're going to stay connected to all of these ideas and um, uh, to the larger feminist community in this country that has power, is exercising its power, is changing the agenda for this country, and is defending access um, to abortion and contraception and, uh, and striving for reproductive justice is the Equal Rights Amendment has been ratified. It's been ratified. People don't know that. It's that, met the <laughs> only two requirements set out in the Constitution for a new amendment. It was voted in 1972 by supermajorities in both the U.S. House and Senate. A, a new amendment has to have 67% vote in both the House and the Senate. That happened in 1972. Um, the second requirement in the Constitution is that three-quarters of the state legislatures, not the people, but the state legislatures, three-quarters of the state legislatures have to vote to ratify an amendment. That happened in January of 2020, when Virginia became the 38th state to vote to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment. Mm -hmm. Trump's Justice Department blocked the archivist from publishing it using the excuse of a timeline, a time limit that was in the preamble of the ERA, not the text of the ERA that 38 states had voted to ratify. So now we are back in front of Congress with resolutions um, to say, recognize the ERA as having been ratified and instruct the archivist to put it in the Constitution. Those resolutions only need a simple majority vote in both the House and the Senate. If it doesn't happen this year, if it doesn't happen next year, we've got to make it an issue in the elections. Yeah. Uh, because without uh, an act by Congress uh, to settle this issue, and Congress has the unique power to do that, not the president, not the executive branch, uh, the, uh, the Constitution only empowers Congress and the state legislatures on this. Mm -hmm. And both have acted. And now we need Congress to act to recognize that the ERA has been ratified, just as they did to get the 14th Amendment into the Constitution. That's right. So this is a repeat of that situation. And we are fighting. This movement is fighting every step of the way. Um, and so if it, uh, my last question to you all was the, the one thing that you think we should do as a movement, um, the most important thing, in your opinion, to, to move forward I obviously would say the Equal Rights Amendment. I think it's critical to recovering abortion rights in this country and to safeguarding the, the uh, advances we've made and to give us a legal route, a constitutional legal route, to, to secure more advances. Um, but to wrap up, and we're over time, if each of you want to say the one thing you think is so critical to moving forward. I would say ditto. I would say the ERA, and I would say that it also works for equal pay. And then I hope that we can do what I've wanted. I call it V2, hit up all your elected officials to get menopause covered with no copay. No. Uh, I think uh, the movement, um, I will use this word adjacent to this, that's important, um, abolish the Electoral College. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know how you have so many priorities? <laughs> it must be because I'm in menopause myself. <laughs> Volunteer time to turn out your network uh, to vote. But voting is not enough in this modern day. Mm -hmm. 
So use your time to educate and engage your fellow citizens on our issues because we need to have a majority of people who believe in our issues who are willing to actually take the votes. It was actually a black woman in Virginia who yes. barely won. And Virginia, women of color led the vote that put her in office. And she was the pivotal leader in um, the, the Virginia, state, in yeah, Virginia, Virginia state delegate, delegate. So I'm just saying, like, focus on... Um, helping to enable our courageous principled leaders, a lot of women of color who would not normally get a lot of shine and a lot of support, focus on these people who will actually, when we get them in there, they will get the job done. So I want to thank Sophia and Betty and Amy for being part of tonight's conversation. And thanks to all of you. And, And we can answer some of your questions as we sign your book. So I hope all of you will buy a book, um, and be part of the, uh, uh, asking us more questions, um, as we sign your book. And, and thank all of you for everything that you do. Uh, you're part of a very large movement, um, and one that is only going to go forward, but it takes everybody pulling together. So thank you for that. Can we give a hand to Kathy Spiller? Thanks, Kathy. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.